Morning, everyone. Um, Evan will be continuing on in a moment or two with our series looking at the Gospel of John. And in preparation for that, if you've got your Bibles or devices open, if you could turn to John chapter 2, the first 11 verses, or follow on the overhead. John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. A very familiar passage, but one that stands the time to look at very closely again. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realise where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine <clears throat> pardon me, the cheaper one after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Tony, let's uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Bible, through which you've given us the message and, and witness and word of Jesus, and please help me to speak clearly for, or please help each of us to consider what you're saying carefully, and please help us to understand and appreciate Jesus even more after today. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, uh, I've noticed after the, over the last few years, as I have uh, as I take public school scripture classes, that if I ask I ask them, "What do you know about Jesus?" or "What can Jesus do?" Um, there's a couple of stories that are up the top. I think this one is 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 about there, up the top. They you know, they might say, "Well, he walked on water." Um, the other one is he turned water into wine. I noticed a couple of other, um, like Beck and Jose, they, they are in um, public schools as well, and I'd, I'd be interested to know if they've had that similar experience. Uh, now, I don't know if it's because, you know, that's what they've been told by their parents. I guess some of them have done school scripture over many years, but I wonder, if does it surprise anyone else, or does it surprise anyone to know that one of the stories that Aussies like best is uh, a story about Jesus giving abundant wine, perhaps not. Um, you know, I thought originally they might say, well, what's, what do we know about Jesus? Well, he's the, one, he's the guy that died on the cross. I mean, that's the symbol you see on top of all the churches, right? Like, what, isn't that the, the main symbol of Christianity? But no, Australians don't tend to like, I guess, that kind of more religious kind of 
uh, things, those religious symbols, the religious-sounding aspects of Jesus' life. They like, Australians like, the story about wine, the story that sounds like party Jesus. Um, Now, the story of Red today, it it really does shape our view of Jesus as we continue to read the Gospel of John, and it's right at the start of the Gospel, and we are looking at the Gospel of John through the next little while. And we might come to the Bible with our own sort of ideas of what Jesus is like, based on our our culture, on uh, the movies, music, uh, our friends, and these sorts of things. And let's be honest, I mean, if you think about how Jesus was portrayed when you were growing up, that's what I did, I thought, well, you know... uh, Ned Flanders was probably uh, number one in my era as I was growing up when people still watched The Simpsons, the kind of, you know, boring, conservative, uninteresting, frugal kind of a person uh, who's the do-gooder. Um, of course, if you're younger, younger generations, that's sort of, that's t- turning around now, isn't it? And you're probably growing up where people have this idea that Christians are the kind of people that sort of suck the, the joy out of life and um, they are kind of uninteresting people and, and in some ways the do-badders now. So it's changed for you. But Jesus can turn water into wine. Doesn't this story turn that on its head? But it, why does he do that? What, what, what for? I mean, is it just kind of a cool party trick? He just wants to be the life of the party? Well, let's have a little look at John uh, chapter 2 this morning. And you can see, let's go right to the last verse that we've read this morning. He sort of give away the punchline, give away what it's like uh, right at the beginning. Because in John, John chapter, in, in verse 11... John makes a point of telling us why Jesus did this. He says that it's a sign. Jesus did this as a sign. And a sign, what does it do? It points to something else. It reveals something else. It reveals his glory. A sign tells us something about reality. A sign points away from itself. So if there was a fire right now, we don't stop and admire the green signs up there. You know, we understand the message of them. We move out. That's the exit over that way. The sign points away from itself and communicates a message about something. And that's what this this sign is. It says something about who Jesus is. That, Well, for one thing, he's glorious. But in what way? In what way is Jesus glorious? As Jesus is revealed in this story, what kind of man is Jesus? These are people, as we look at John's Gospel, who are sitting there with someone who looks like an ordinary human being in so many ways. I mean, he would have looked like one of us. And yet he can do this extraordinary thing. Well, what for? What does it say about Jesus that he turns all this water into wine? What kind of man is he? Now, another part of context is that John's really, he unashamedly wants us to put our faith in Jesus. So this sign is meant to show us that Jesus is someone that we can trust, that we can follow. And he explicitly says this again at the end of the gospel, in chapter 20, in verse 31. He says that he writes so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, or the Messiah, rather, that he's the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we have my life in his name. So there's that word in there that for many of you will be familiar, and maybe not for everybody, Messiah. That Jesus is God's chosen one. That's what John wants us to believe. That's the sign. That's what this is pointing forward to, that Jesus is just is no ordinary human being, that he is the one chosen by God to do something great in this world. So what is he like? Well, to recap the story, uh, we see the, the incident takes place at a wedding feast in Cana in Galilee. It's not an important center of activity like Jerusalem was. It was close to Jesus' hometown. Now, the writer says that it took place on the third day after the events of the previous 
chapter, in chapter 1, Jesus had started kind of gathering disciples together. People had started following him, but he hadn't really started his public ministry yet in a big way. So he's kind of quietly going about drawing certain people to himself. And Jesus and his family, his mother, they're at this wedding and they're in this embarrassing situation where they, they run out of wine. Now, that's a big deal in a culture that's much more based on uh, shame and honour and where hospitality is such a big part of that. It's a, it's a real honour to show hospitality to others. Now, it's interesting that Mary looks to Jesus to do something about it. So if this is the first of his signs, that must mean she hasn't really, she hasn't seen him do anything spectacular like this. And yet she's thinking, well, maybe it's time for him to start some stuff. She knows who he is from the announcement of the angels and so on when Jesus was born. But, she hasn't, but Jesus hasn't performed any signs like this yet. And I don't know if you noticed his reply. It sounds a little cold, doesn't it? He says, dear woman, why do you involve me? Why is he saying that? He's saying that time for him, his time hasn't yet come. I think the best way to think about that is that it's just not the time yet. Well, Jesus hadn't planned for now to be the time to reveal himself. Or when he does reveal himself, he'll be the one who chooses when that's going to happen. It's going to be on his agenda, not anybody else setting that agenda for him. Now, again, you can see that Mary anticipates and she hopes that Jesus is going to do something spectacular. And she asks the servants in verse 5 to do whatever Jesus tells them to do. So it's like she is acknowledging she's going to say, okay, Jesus, I can't boss you around. I've got to do whatever you want to do, but we're going to trust that you can do it and you'll do what's good. Now, what happens? Jesus tells some servants to go and fill up six huge water jars with water. And you're looking at your calculation, well, it says in your footnotes of the NIV, at least anyway, it's going to be like 500 litres of water. So, you know, hundreds of litres of, of wine, hundreds, stacks and stacks of bottles of wine. Now, then he tells them to draw the water out, and as they do, well, they, they take it to the master, and the, the, the master or the, the bridegroom, sorry, they recognise it as really good wine. So at the end of verse 9 into verse 10, they, the, he pulls the bridegroom aside and he compliments him. He says, you've just been so generous in providing this wine. Because most people bring out the bad wine after everyone else uh, has had a good amount. So they won't notice how average it is at this point. You can save a little bit of money. But the host of this banquet hasn't done that. Now, do you notice Jesus' generosity and kindness here? Because Jesus could have piped up at this point and gone, hang on, you're giving the credit to him. Don't credit him. I did it. I'm the one who, uh, who gave you all this abundant and really good wine. But he lets the bridegroom save face. And he lets the guest think that it's his generosity in providing this really good wine. Now, Jesus' disciples, though, they do know it's him. And as they see what he's done, look at verse 11, they put their faith in him. They put their faith in him. Now, why? Why are they so impressed with this? Well, I guess on, on the one hand, I mean, it's just an impressive thing to do, right? Like uh, even your pen and tellers, they can't get just real water and without some kind of illusion, they can't actually change the substance into wine. I mean, that is some sort of great power over the creation to be able to do that. But there's a little bit more in there that if you were somebody who was sort of steeped in the Jewish uh, understanding of the Old Testament, then you'd see what this is pointing to. And you'd see that this is pointing to Jesus as God's chosen Messiah. 
The time of God's Messiah is here. That's what this sign is announcing. The disciples understood this and they believed in him. Because wine has a great symbolic power in the Old Testament. They saw at this time that he's the son of God and he's got all the power of the sovereign creator. I mean, he can change the very molecules of water into something completely different. And so it is a sign of God's great power at work through Jesus. But there's a sense as well in which it's sort of like a parable, a story that has a meaning. So sometimes in other places, Jesus uses the image of the wedding banquet as a picture of what heaven will be like. We see a picture of people eating together, enjoying one another's company. It's very very earthy, very down-to-earth. It's not kind of like floating around in the clouds like ghosts in white sheets or something. What we're looking forward to and what the Messiah will bring is an abundance of God's blessing. And that's what this symbolizes. The future we're looking forward to, the future where the Messiah reigns and all recognize and enjoy that, is a future where people know God and see him face to face, where people enjoy his presence and his provision forever. God's people had been waiting for his chosen one who would come and bring peace and prosperity and safety. They were a nation that were living under the oppression of another nation. The Roman rulers over them, they weren't allowed to uh, practice their religion as they wanted to. They didn't have the peace and prosperity that they were promised in the Old Testament. Now, what's so amazing to this master of the banquet was the quality of the wine and the quantity of the wine that came at the end of the banquet. There wasn't really much need for more. I mean, they, they had a good quantity of wine already. But that, that's where the sim, sim, symbolism is. There are several places in the Bible where having plenty of good wine is a symbol of enjoying God's blessing. So Jeremiah, he looks forward to the time of God's Messiah. He says, they, God's people, will come and shout for joy in the heights of Zion. They will rejoice in the bounty of the Lord, the grain, the new wine and the olive oil. The young of the flocks and herds, they will be like a well-watered garden and they will sorrow no more. Having lots of wine, it's a sign of God's blessing, of having everything you need and more. And God is, Jesus is pouring that out in abundance, in generosity. It's not like Jesus kind of like, you know, oh, okay, we'll give a little bit more, little top up your half a glass. It's not stingy or mean, it's over generous. And doesn't that say something about who Jesus is? And how we see his glory, that he is a generous, giving sort of a God. So the disciples at this time, they're starting to get a glimpse, I think, of what Jesus is going to do. They understand that he's ushering in a new era, something new is going to happen. A new period of history where the Messiah reigns as God's chosen king. These, these water jars, which were filled with water and used for ceremonial cleansing, now used for something better, something abundant, good wine, and sim, which is symbolic of, of the good covenant, the new covenant that Jesus has come to make with his people, where through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we can enjoy his peace and presence forever. To these people, perhaps... To a lot of Jewish people at that time, the old covenant had become about following rules, cleansing rules, purification rules, and laws. 
And perhaps people, we see in the Gospels, many people had abandoned or forgotten about their relationship with God, which was to come first. Following rules just for the sake of order to appear good to other people without following God truly. But this new covenant is about God providing abundant grace to his people so that he's done everything we need to be cleansed and purified. The disciples who witnessed this, now they don't look at it and think, well, he's just done a magic trick. It's, it's kind of impressive. The very point of this is that it is completely unexpected and impossible for a normal person. And it's not as though we're looking at pre-scientific people who kind of go, oh, well, these things happen every day. They know something extraordinary and completely unexpected has happened. And they were there, they witnessed it. Of course, I can't prove scientifically that Jesus did it, but we trust the witness of those who were there. And perhaps if there's some more that you want to look into, how can these things happen today? That's why we're running Alpha at 5 p.m., so that we can ask these big questions and think about, is there good evidence to believe Jesus is who he says he is? But at this point, we see that what the Bible presents of with Jesus is that he is the one who created everything, created this world so that he can so easily manipulate everything in it, the molecules of water, to do exactly what he wants to do. And that's part of the glory that is revealed here. That Jesus is, uh, has the power of God as his Messiah. Now at this point, Jesus doesn't tell everyone, only his disciples, his mother and the servant know where the wine came from. And it's part of revealing to the world the glory of the creator in Jesus' life over time. Jesus ma- John makes this point in chapter 1, verse 3, that through him all things were made. In verse 11 of chapter 1, Jesus came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all those who did receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. And that's what these disciples do. They respond to him as they see what he can do. Now, as I was thinking about this, I was thinking that, you know, there have been times uh, in our history where people have kind of, I guess they've seen uh, that there is a powerful God and they've seen that we should respond to him in faith, repentance, that sort of thing. And then they kind of think, well, then life is just about... uh, renouncing everything else in the world. Like, we want to live in extreme poverty and, and discomfort. Not so much now. I mean, you think of monks from a long time ago. Perhaps it's, it's more the opposite now. Um, we think of, like, the prosperity gospel, which can be really popular. And uh, perhaps some of us almost react against that. But this is, I, I guess, an example, an encouraging example of Jesus enjoying and celebrating uh, his creation and, and giving his people to his people. But it is also a symbol that points forward to the time when these things will be revealed fully, where we'll get to live with his abundance uh, fully, and that will be the new creation. We can, of course, as we read this, remember that, that God does allow us and wants us to enjoy the things that he's made. He's not a stingy God, as some might perceive. He's a generous God, an overly generous God in lots of ways. There will be times when people do, you know, God does ask us to give up riches because they're not meant to be the things that we chase as our God. They're meant to be things that we receive with gratitude as a gift from him. And certainly, now, I wonder if some of you have thought of this. When it comes to drink, sometimes it can be almost like a God in Australian culture. Uh, I've been to a Bucks party where um, some of the guys, you know, I, I... 
they couldn't believe that I wasn't just like drinking to excess with them. And I sort of tried to explain that, well, you know, I don't drink too much and I believe, you know, as a Christian, I want to exercise self-control and they were just blown away. One guy actually got up and went, I've never met anyone like that. I had to go and sit inside. He was so blown away that somebody wouldn't just overindulge in alcohol. But some of you have seen the terrible, the terrible kind of consequences when someone does overindulge in alcohol, it can be terrible. I've never had to, to live with a drunk, but, uh, you know, from what I've heard, it, it's, it's terrible. I did recently uh, speak at my friend's dad's funeral, and he had died uh, in his 60s after ha- being an alcoholic for many, many years, and it was sad. They put, a, they put his last bottle of drink uh, on the casket. And that's just an example, I think, of our Australian culture, that, like, it's, it's good, it's cool to overindulge, and it's sort of like, that's, that's sort of like when we, we, we receive a gift from God and kind of make it God itself. Like, that's what we pursue. That's, you know, when we go through struggles or times of difficulty in life, we look to stuff like alcohol to make us feel better, and it it only enslaves. It's got that addictive quality. Jesus wants to be generous and to give to us, but in the way that he wants for us to do that. So overindulgence in alcohol can cause damage in our lives, just as some good things like our, our wealth that we accrue through work. I mean, that, that's, that's great. But when it becomes a God, we pursue it. It can enslave us. We work too long hours. We're not involved in the lives of our family and friends uh, because we're chasing wealth above all things. Good things can turn into things that enslave us if we treat them as our God, and it can be very sad. So as we think about God as our generous provider and giver, someone who wants to give us abundant and joyful life, then the response to that is to live with gratitude and to then bless others with what he's given us. So we can be thankful. God is not the party pooper. List those things. Think about those things that he's given you in life that you can be grateful for. And remember that they're a blessing from a good and loving and generous creator. But remember to enjoy these things in the context in which he's provided them. Don't hoard these things for yourself. Remember to um, show that blessing to others. Remember the sign above our church as you walk in that this is a, we are a river of life. With what God has blessed us with, we are meant to bless others in return. As we are blessed with God's blessing and abundant life, it's meant to flow out to those around us. And may that be the case of Tari Baptist Church. Of course, without seeing our sin being dealt with, Being confronted with a God who can do these kind of things, who can change the very molecules of water, would be overwhelming and terrifying. You'd not be able to stand before God on your own. Throughout uh, throughout John's Gospel, as we read on, there are a number of times where it talks about Jesus' hour coming. Remember Jesus rebuked his mother and said his hour had not yet come? And that that points forward to something that he's going to do later on in in this Gospel. And you'll see, of course, and many of you have read this gospel many, many times, that the hour refers to his death and resurrection. It's very easy to look at other people and kind of think, well, there's somebody else who's treating God's good gifts and generosity as God in itself, as an end in itself, without, with, while ignoring their creator. But we all do that in certain ways. We all do that. It might look different. Some of us ignore God in a very obvious way, party, living what we want to do. We hate God. Some of us in a not-so-obvious way. Some of us are like children who do all the right things, do all our chores, mow the lawn, do the dishes, 
but completely ignore the parents. Can you imagine any parent being satisfied with that? There are people who appear to do all the good things, all the religious things, but they don't give glory to God, they don't thank God, they're not in relationship with God. But in, later in this gospel, Jesus revealed his, his hour, his time is in his grace and mercy is when he'll deal with our sin by dying on the cross, where he'll be raised in power so that one day we can be raised to live with him forever. This sign in John 2 points to the glory of our generous creator, but it's just part of the picture of the glory that Jesus, uh, that John reveals in Jesus' life, death and resurrection. So as we look at this sign, uh, of course, a sign, is, we're not meant to dwell on that sign, we're meant to look at what the sign is pointing to. Do you see how Jesus is that all-powerful, sovereign creator who came to give his life and rise for you? Do you give him thanks for all the good gifts and blessing that you enjoy in your life? Because you can. This sign reveals Jesus' glory. And I think a good prayer for all of us to pray is, Lord, show me your glory. If you're discouraged, if you're doubting, if you're struggling with some sin, Lord, show me your glory. See that God in Christ is abundantly generous. He's an abundantly generous God. He pours out not only the material blessings we see, but Jesus will pour out his life. Now, we're going to celebrate that together now. We're going to move straight into a time of communion together. We know that wine would come to symbolise Jesus' blood that was poured out for us. Bread symbolises his body which he, gave out, which he gave up for us. Our rebellion against God, our tendency to take the gifts, ignore him, that should result in the penalty of death for us. But Jesus, in his generosity, took that death upon himself. So we spend that time now to remember that. So if those who are serving um, could come forward... Uh, what we'll do is we'll give out, as we usually do, give out the bread, and there'll be a little bit of time uh, in that space for you then to just stop and, and think about what Jesus has done for you. You might like to pray. Others like to use this time to confess those things where they haven't done what God wants them to do or they've done things that God does not want them to do, to confess those things, to bring them to God and remember that he forgives because of what he's done on the cross. Uh, as, uh, as the bread comes around, you can do that. You can eat that in your own time, but we'll um, drink, hold the cup and drink that together as a symbol of our unity.